Trinity hymnal. Big plus. It has that tune for that hymn. Big minus. It doesn't have an amen at the end of that hymn. So take your pick. Um, for those of you who'd like the Tozer tract, um, I'm, we're going to pass around a list. If you don't want it, don't have to sign it. But if you'd like a copy, if you'd like some more than uh, one, sign it. And let's see, Joe Judas, is it your birthday? Where'd, you, where'd Joe go? Where you? Oh, there you are. Joe, um, would you be responsible to get that whenever it's done? Or make sure Joe gets it? And just give it a while. When the secretary sees uh, 150 names requesting 10,000 tracts, uh, if she doesn't quit... Uh, she'll at least say we've got to put in an order for more of them. But you'll get them. It'll just, well, assuming the mail system. Will you get mail in California? Not email. You know, the stuff that comes in a box? Yeah, you do. You still get it. What's, what? Oh, Pony Express. Okay. All right. There you go. Well, I hope your horses are working well. Incidentally, and I came up with this before I knew it was your birthday, Joe, but I, um, I am really impressed with the T-shirt culture in California. I feel much too dressed out here. You believe it or not, my wife expected I was going to wear a tie. Don Buchanan, Pastor Buchanan said, we'll kill you if you wear a tie. But I love the T-shirt. But I have an award. I have an award for the best T-shirt. I love Machen and Dabney and Calvin and these others. But the best one I saw this morning. And Mr. LeJudas, would you please stand and read your T-shirt to us? Please read your T-shirt. A garrisee, rather. Excellent. And Joe, that, that's, maybe you'll will that to him, Mr. Garrisey? There you go. Very good. That's, that's the best T-shirt I've seen. All right, let's pray as we begin our final hour. This is what, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm still alive and you're still kicking, I guess. One page 21 of the notes. Let's pray as we look at the most important direction for mortifying sin. Unto you, O Lord, belong all wisdom and glory and honor and dominion and majesty and might. For you created all things, and by you they are and they do exist. And we bow before you with joy and with at the same time humility. You have told us we are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And it is with that godly mixture of emotion that we come before you to learn what it is to be partakers of the greatest victory in the universe, the victory over sin and death and the devil. And now be pleased as we look at this remaining direction to strengthen us. May we gird up the loins of our minds. You have promised that the Lord Jesus will be lifted up and because of His own being lifted up on the cross, He will draw all people unto Himself. And now in the lifting up of Christ's name in preaching, and draw, him, draw us to Him with fresh drafts of His love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything else that I have said to you in these six or five hours is second place to what I'm going to deal with in the remaining hour that we have. I did not say that everything else I've covered with you is unimportant. It is eternally important. But I am saying that everything else that I covered is second place to this. We are dealing with the Christian's life and death battle. And if you've survived this this long with this amount of intentiveness, you are intent on by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh that you might live and joy in this life 
the fullness of blessings Christ has and in the age to come, life everlasting. Therefore, you need to know what the most important direction this, that you have, and that is that you constantly go to Christ in faith for the killing of your sin. You constantly go to Christ in faith for the killing of your sin. Everyone has faith. There is no one who does not have faith. An atheist has faith that there is no God. Very bad faith. But faith it is. Acts 17 and verse 22. Paul said of the Athenians, I perceive by all of your idols you are very religious. And you are people who have deep devotion. They have faith. But the question we need to ask of ourselves and of others is what do we have faith in? If you have faith in a cloud to hold you, if you have fallen out of a plane, you're going to die. And even when you come to Christ, it must be the Christ of the Scriptures. Faith in what? In the case of mortification of sin, you must constantly go to Christ in faith for the killing of your sin because Christ is the great conqueror of sin. Remember that by the Gospel, you are privileged always to go to Christ. You know what a worship service is? In a worship service, at least according to the OPC, Directory for Worship, when people follow it, as they ought to do, as you are in worship, you are preparing to meet God. And there is a salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and, the Jesus, and Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's real. Based on the epistolary model, two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ and Jesus is there. And you know it right at the outset. You come bruised and battered and discouraged and afraid and beset with the things of the world. And right away is grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. You approach the Lord. You praise the Lord. You pray to the Lord. You come into the presence of the Lord with a prayer of approach or an invocation, whatever you call it. You are in the presence of the Lord. And amazingly, you're not dead. You're alive. And then, in a worship service, however it's structured, you are confessing your own sins. And you are coming before the Lord for mercy. Second to preaching, I love the assurance of pardon the most. I love to know when I'm in worship that however, whether led by the pastor, whether done through responsive reading or a combination of it, when my heart is ripped open on the Lord's day and I'm made to see my own sin by the law and there's a confession of sin, I'm thankful we don't stop there. You know why? All kinds of churches that believe in prayer. But not all churches believe that there's an answer that comes from heaven. And I'm so thankful that there's an answer. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that's not enough, the Gospel's preached. And my heart's opened up again, or I'm brought up to the glories of heaven, but I'm made to realize my creatureliness and my sin. But in real biblical worship, not some of the stuff that passes as so-called neo-Puritanism, you don't dangle people over the pits of hell and then have a benediction. You call them to come to Christ. And you invite them to come and believe and rest in Him. And that is glorious. My friends, let me ask you, if you lost your sense of that privilege, don't lose it. That 
privilege of corporate worship, when you understand what it means, is in Christ the most glorious privilege you have this side of heaven. That's the nearest you have to heaven. In the presence of God, by the Word and Spirit, and by sacrament. Speaking to Him in faith, by prayer. Him speaking to you by His Word. That's why good worship doesn't begin with an introduction from the Narnia Chronicles. It begins with the Word of God and concludes with the Word of God and is filled with it. That's how Jesus speaks to you from heaven. And all the time He's saying, you come to me and believe in me. As Owen put it regarding the Gospel, Christ's blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin, for sin's sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lusts dead at your feet. Here's big old fat Ehud who opposed the Lord's people. And Eglon took his sword and stuck it right in his belly. So even the top of the sword got swallowed up in that mass of obesity. You know how you remember that Eglon did it? Eglon slew Ehud the fatty. That's the way you remember that. Ehud, like sin, is put to death. Abimelech has his head crushed by an upper millstone. And Sisera has a tent peg put through his head. Jael slew Sisera with a nail. That's how you remember that one. And that's exactly what happens when in Christ your sins are put to death. I didn't say if you're preaching about those things. That's the application. That's just an illustration to make it memorable. But that's exactly what happens. Now, how does it come? How does it come that through Christ, sin is put to death? Well, remember, there is perfect provision for you in Christ. I want that to sink in. You tell me the need that you have in battling sin, and you make it as black and dark and foreboding as you want to make it. And if you had to trust in me to help you, then you stay with your dark picture. But there's perfect provision for you in Christ for everything. That again, why the line, you know, these souls were so sensitive, and I thank God when they are, and their pastor, I'm so convicted of my sin. Ah, for every look at yourself, ten looks at Christ. Look at Colossians 1 and verses 19 to 23. Colossians 1 and verses 19 to 23. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. Now I realize there's a discussion about whether fullness deals with Jesus as essentially God. Full, fully God. That does not seem to make sense because you wonder how it could be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally co-equal it could please the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. I'm not saying that's the wrong view, but that seems to be a weakness in that view. Far better, I think, to understand this, particularly because of the context, is meaning it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness of grace and graces leading to salvation should be in Him. I think that's the right way you understand it because he goes on and says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Where is the treasury of merit? In the church of Rome? No. 
It is in Jesus Christ. It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. And if you didn't get the point, by Him, it says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, that's why there will be a new heavens and a new earth, having made peace through the blood of the cross. That's why Owen says Christ's blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Because as you go on, it says, and you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works. Yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, shield of faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. You are standing fast, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. There is perfect provision in Christ for all of those things. So in John 1 and verse 16, John says, and of His fullness, same fullness as in verse 19, of the treasury of merit in Christ, we have all received, and he says, if that's not enough, and grace upon grace, one grace after another, running to beat one another to the goal of your own heart. Philippians 4 and verse 13, Paul says, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. There is perfect provision in you, for you in Christ for what? For all of your sin. All of your sin. Don't say, well, what about the sin against the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you. Whatever the sin unto death is, or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, if you'd committed it, you wouldn't be concerned about it. So don't worry about it right now, okay? You're concerned about your sin, I tell you, for all of your sin, for all of your lusts, for all of your inability, for all of your weakness, for all of your weariness, for all of your discouragement, for all of your fears, for all of your failings, there is perfect provision for you in Christ. Let's look at a couple of texts. Isaiah 40 and verses 27 to 31. Remember Isaiah 40 begins? This last half of Isaiah, still written by Isaiah, but now pointing us forward in a very special way to the future, begins comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned because our greatest warfare is with iniquity. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's as if you were to say, take all of the sins that I have committed, yea, all of the elect of God, and Christ's work is so sufficient for it. Take everything that's needed for it. Multiply by two. And that's how much He did. 
Now, the end of that is what we're looking at. Notice that God has shown all of His glory. He says all the nations. There is a drop of the bucket. Just a bit of condensation on the bucket. Now He says in Isaiah 40 and verse 27, Now why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Why does He say that? Because Israel has for 39 chapters had its own corporate heart ripped open by the Lord Jehovah who says your judgments cause or your sin has caused me to mete out my judgments upon you. And now you say, Lord, we're your people. Has my just claim been passed over by my God? And God says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is before all things, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one Paul told the Colossians, by whom all things were made, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. But all He did and all He bare, He gives us as our own to share. And hope and joy and peace begin and Christ has risen. Christ is one and man shall win. Because watch, He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Again, Pastor, I love that. Someone comes to the study and says, Pastor, I'm so weak to overcome my sin. And I say, no, you're not weak. You're helpless. And then they're really smitten. I say, but look, look at what it says in Isaiah 40. I say to them, are you weaker than God is strong? They say, oh, no, Pastor. Then look at the text with me. He gives power to the weak. God all-powerful? Yes. Then don't tell me how weak you are. And to those who have no might, is that you? Yes. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, and we do that through our mediator Christ, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. That's Isaiah saying in Jesus you can do all things through Christ. Now see, that's what I mean by the fact that there's perfect provision even for your weakness in Christ. Some of you are going to go down that mountain tomorrow or tonight and you're going to say, I've got to go back and do a real battle with sin and I am so weak. Through Pastor Shisko, I've been able to see something of how poor and weak I am. I don't want you to leave with that. I want you to leave with the greatness of your God. You go down that mountain with faith in a God I trust and in His Son whom He sent who's able to give you power to deal with all of these things. And He will do it. See, we make fun of the Pentecostals sometimes. We shouldn't do that because their big text is, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And their power is tongues. And then we say, we don't believe in tongues. Therefore, we don't believe in power. And that's wrong. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. It's power to walk in holiness in Christ. And here's an example of it. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. I love this text. And my pastor friends can relate to this. The Scriptures say that we are to spend and be spent in the work of the Lord. Spending's what you got. Spending's what in being spent is what you don't have. 
and despite my best intents of getting enough rest before I preach on the Lord's Day, all too often, and normally it's not because of my own ill-discipline, it's very late on a Sunday night or Saturday night, very early on a Sunday morning. And sometimes early on a Sunday morning, it's trying to get together that final outline for what you preach. That's the thing seminary professors who's never been pastors don't know a thing about. They teach a few hours a week, and it's easy for them to say, if you don't take 20 hours a week to prepare a sermon, don't preach. I'd love to take some of them and say, you go out in the pastorate for two years. And Sunday, I get up in the pulpit, and I'm bushed. And it is my own sin and weakness, and I say it not periodically. Check you on a Sunday night. I'll be driving to the church. It's about ten minutes from where we live. And I'll say, Lord, I count it the greatest privilege in the face of the earth to preach, but I sure do wish I could get a nap. It's usually been, not always, but usually it's been in those times, the Spirit comes with great power and does what Paul speaks about here. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. He said to me, after Paul had sought the Lord regarding the thorn in the flesh, and the Lord didn't take it away from him, but the Lord said to Paul, and He says to you, through an inspired, inerrant, sufficient word to make you thoroughly equipped unto every good work, Paul, forget about the thorn. Remember my grace. It is sufficient for you. He doesn't say it's all powerful for you. He says it's just what you need. It is sufficient for you. For God loves to do this. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Let Pastor Shisko, who worked 60 hours on a sermon, got eight hours of sleep before he went in the pulpit, who had a wonderful breakfast, never had any arguments with the kids before he went to church, get up in the pulpit, the epitome of good looks, and that would really be something for this, preach the finest sermon on the face of the earth, and he might pat himself on the back. And the Lord say, forget it, Bill. I don't want all of your prowess. And that's no reason for you to tempt God by lassitude in your work. But I want to show you people who are weak, just like you are, that I show my power through a man who can barely keep his eyeballs open. Because you know what? That's you, folks. That's all of you. We're just like that. That's the glory of live preaching. D. James Kennedy gets up in the pulpit. He's got the beautiful lighting on his pulpit, the perfect makeup. Man, this guy looks like he surfed all week long. It's perfect. <laughs> poor exhausted preacher gets up in an OPC. Poor guy looks like he needs to put him in a convalescent home. <laughs> Who is that, Raleigh? <laughs> yeah. I keep going at this rate. Get a room right next to yours. <laughs> but listen. That's the excellency of live preaching. The real world is not a stage with lights on it. It's a real world of very weak people who fail miserably, who don't reach their goals in a week and fall far short of God's glory that must live by the grace of Christ. And the great loving Jesus
loves you so much that he gives you pastors just like you. See, he could have given angels that are disembodied spirits, but they couldn't relate to you. But you see, that's, that's one of the excellencies of the church. Jesus gives preachers who know something of what it is to have perfect provision in Christ. Listen once again to Owen. Owen, who It's interesting, Owen was a very active man. I don't know how this guy could write 20 volumes of material, in Latin no less, and yet be a, a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell and was very busy in Christian activities and projects. Owen wrote, and now with that background you can understand this, I am a poor, weak creature, unstable as water. I cannot excel. My corruption is too hard for me. And it's at the very door of ruining my soul. And what to do, I know not. My soul has become as parched ground and a habitation of dragons. I've made promises and I've broken them. I've made vows and engagements, but they've been as a thing of naught. Many persuasions have I had that I'd gotten the victory and should be delivered, but I'm deceived so that I plainly see that without some eminent assistance, I'm lost and I will be prevailed on to an utter relinquishment of God. Incidentally, don't you see how outdated and irrelevant the Puritans are? I mean, you know, this stuff doesn't apply today, right? Throw it out. But yet, though this be my state and condition, let the hands that hang down be lifted up and the feeble knees be strengthened. Behold, the Lord Christ who has all fullness of grace in his heart, all fullness of power in his hand, he is able to slay all of these enemies. There is sufficient provision in Christ for my relief and assistance. He can take my drooping, dying soul and make me more than a conqueror. Well, if that's Puritan preaching, let's have a whole lot more of it. Now, you see the point. He's very realistic about his human condition. But he says what has been said. I don't know who authored the term, but it's a great expression. Your extremity is God's opportunity. And it is. Your bankruptcy is the opportunity for Christ to fill you with his riches. Your weakness is the opportunity for Christ to fill you with his strength. All of your failings is the opportunity for Jesus to say, See the glory of my blood. All of your sense of your own modeled righteousness is Jesus' opportunity to show you the glory of his garments of righteousness. If you're like Samson this week and you sense that by sin you've had your two eyeballs or maybe just one plucked out, just remember that the Lord's grace came upon Samson. It was emblemized by the growth of his hair. And when it was necessary, Samson was able to knock down the pillars of the Philistine temple. And he'll do it for you. Samson, Hebrews 11 tells us, is in glory. He was a man of faith. There's perfect provision for you in Christ. And my dear brothers and sisters, you expect relief. You expect that Jesus will give you the victory over your sin. And I promise you, it will come. 1 John 5 and verse 14. Now, this is the confidence, the assurance, the rock of Gibraltar assurance that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And you come before God and you say, O oh Lord, make me holy. And don't say if it's Your will, because it is His will. You'll call His name Jesus. He will save His 
people from their sins. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we are His workmanship, created unto good works, which He has before ordained that you should walk in them. So you don't have to pray, Lord, if it's Your will, make me holy. You say, O Lord God, McShane did, make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. Now before you pray, you better be ready for how the Lord might answer it. It might be rough, but it'll be good. But it's a great prayer. Make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. And again, what is His promise? Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. You know why the eagle is the symbol of the American nation? It flies freely. It has conquered the elements. You watch a beautiful eagle fly and it's as if there is no law of gravity. It's free. They shall mount up with wings like the free eagle, run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. And my brothers and sisters, I want to impress upon you that Christ is a whole lot more concerned for you and your holiness than you are for yourself. See, we flagellate ourselves. Oh Lord, I desire to be holy, but you're going to have to work by even giving me a real desire for holiness. Oh Lord, I know you've given me a new heart, but oh, my heart seems like it's dead. And I don't believe I can lose my salvation. I have to get it over again, but sometimes I feel like I need to. But the Lord's more concerned for you are than you are for yourself. Remember, God is your Father. Parents, aren't you more concerned for your children than they are for themselves? You're a whole lot more concerned for Adam than he is for himself, right? Isn't that true? That's the way parents are. They agonize over their children. They love their children. They so grieve when they see their children doing foolish things. Now, we're not sovereign that we can change the hearts of our children as God can, but the emotion is the same. God is more concerned for your holiness than you are, and that's glorious. Now, that's how you can expect an answer. There's provision for you in Christ and expect relief and it will come, but I'm not going to stop there. Specifically, I want you to consider five things. One, consider as you constantly go to Christ in faith for the killing of your sin, number one, Christ's mercy and tenderness and kindness. See, I'm not going to stop at saying go to Christ. What does that mean? Go to Christ's mercy and tenderness and kindness. Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Here you come before the Lord in prayer that the Lord make you as holy as it is possible for a saved person to be. To whom are you coming? Therefore in all things, Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like His brethren, just like you that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Isn't it amazing when you confess your sins, even quietly, you don't want to say what they are because you're too embarrassed. Jesus says, I was tempted to the nth degree in that respect and I never sinned, but I know everything you're going through on your pathway. You are on this pathway of temptation. I was tempted by the devil too and I've seen all the landscape. Don't be afraid to tell me about it 
And because of that, I'm able to aid you. I'm able to tell you how to get on the road to glory. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. See the language again? Standing. I'm talking about advancing. You advance by standing fast. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, to enter right into those weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, as a prophet, tells me in His Word how I'm to live and please Him. Jesus, as a priest, says, Come to Me. I can understand exactly where you are. Don't say, dealing with Roman Catholics, we don't have a priest. We have the best priest. We have the Lord Jesus. Don't say, don't go to the priest. Just say, make sure you go to the right priest. How can you... Go to a priest who's never been married and get counsel for your marriage. And they think they're smart. And they say, oh, but Jesus was never married. And say, listen, how would you like to have the whole church as your bride and take care of it? Jesus knows all about it. <laughs> See, that's New York blunt. Snuff them out, folks, when they come. Don't let them stop you. And he's a king. You come boldly before the throne of grace. He's told you in Scripture what you're to do. He understands. And when you pray, He says, if I've got to make the sun stand still to make you holy, I'll do it. See? Consider Christ's mercy and tenderness and His kindness. And especially for you bruised reeds and smoking flaxes. Pastor friends, read Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed. It's a classic of pastoral theology. A bruised reed. You know these cat and nine tails out in swampy areas? And you see them and they're just, they're bent over. And, and I'll tell you, Frank, a good gust of wind get them, they're going to they're gonna crack. A bruised reed, he does not break. You know, some preachers forget that. They think, man, we not only got to get bruised reeds in this church, we got to bust them up good. And if that's Neo-Puritanism, puke it out, folks. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax, a little old piece of fibrous material, and there's one spark in it, and there's smoke, and oh, in a second it's going to go out. And Jesus doesn't take his hand and snuff it out. He lightly blows on it by the Spirit until it comes to flame. That's the great and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to be afraid of that Jesus. Matthew 12, 18 to 21. He says, A bruised reed I will not break. A smoking flax I won't quench. Number two, consider Christ's full, free, genuine offers of mercy. Consider Christ's full, free, genuine offers of mercy to you. Isaiah 55, 1-3. through three. Isaiah 55 and 1-3. through three. I hope before
before the Lord takes me to glory. I know how to say ho the way I'm supposed to say it, but I can honestly, I don't know exactly how to say it. Well, I sound like an idiot. But I think it's something like this. Imagine yourself way out in the desert, a little bit to the east of this area. And it is hot. It is dry. You've got people wandering around in the deserts, and there's no Coca-Cola, there's no Pepsi, there's not even any bottled water, there's not even Brita water, and no stream. And these people are wandering around bleary-eyed and just about ready to fall. And I think it's in that context that we're supposed to say this. Ho! 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 Everyone who thirsts! And they look up. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And they say, but wait a minute. I know America. I don't have any money to buy the waters, even if there were some. No, no, no. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can't pass that up. Why are you spending your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight yourself in abundance. Would it be that in our churches people go out on Sunday and say, Oh, my soul delighted itself in the abundance of grace in Christ. Incline your ear. Come to Me. Hear and your soul will live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David. Christ's full, free, genuine offers of mercy. And my dear brothers and sisters, you must believe those invitations as well as all of the doctrines. The same Bible that says God foreordained men from the foundation of the world and says you cannot come to Me that you might have life is the same book that tells preachers you tell people to come. You go to dead Lazaruses and you say to them, Lazarus, come forth. And you don't be a hyper-Calvinistic rationalist who's a liberal. A liberal in Puritan clothing. Why do I say that? Because they don't believe the invitation. That's part of the Word of God. And they say to them, oh, come on, Lazarus is a corpse. You can't bid him to come forth. Why, if he's elect, he'll come forth. Because God has ordained in a mystery beyond anything we can understand that while that Lazarus is dead, that elect sinner is dead and can only come alive by sovereign grace. He's a God of means. And the means is to say, come Lazarus, come forth, believe, trust, and cling. And somewhere between the point at which the voice of God goes forth to the creature and before Lazarus opens his eyes and comes forth, the Spirit comes down and raises him from the dead. But one is necessary to the other. How can they even hear unless there be a preacher? And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And I mean that. That stuff of hyper-Calvinism in which people really do deny the promises has in it the pernicious, cancerous seed of liberalism that will do away with other things in time. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. Ah, but that's only to thirsty sinners. 
Well, I don't have any medical tests, quite frankly. Maybe you do. But when i got people that come into the church on Sunday, I don't have some throat depressors at the back so they can find out who the thirsty ones are. So I can say, now, my fellow elders gave me a list of all those of you in here that are thirsty. Now, you over here, and you over here, and you over here, and you over here. You're thirsty. I know that. The promise is to you. The rest of you, don't even listen. Everyone who thirsts, you come to the waters. And if they're so full of the water the devil's given them, they're not going to come. But there's others, and they need to hear. Come. Come to the waters. Christ's full, free, genuine offers of mercy. You will not come to me that you might have life. But those who come to me, I will no way cast out. And you need that. Number three, consider Christ's faithfulness. Consider Christ's faithfulness. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. You know what that means? God says to Moses, By my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to Abraham. didn't mean that Abraham didn't know the name. But that means, My name, Lord, my name is the Almighty One, wed to these promises in what's called a covenant. And Moses, unlike Abraham, who didn't know what it was like to be delivered out of Egypt, you're going to see what it means. That I've made promises to deliver Israel, and I've got the power to even move the waters of the Red Sea to fulfill them. I'm Yahweh. I am the Lord. And you consider that that Yahweh is the Lord Jesus. His name is both Lord and Christ. Consider His faithfulness. Look at Lamentations 3 and verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Praise God. Because His compassions never fail. If you didn't get the point then, they are new every morning. And oh, P.S., let me tell you once again about His faithfulness. His faithfulness is great. And so the psalmist or the writer says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. Those mercies, his compassions, his faithfulness, no, no, no. His great faithfulness, that's mine. Because the Lord is my portion. That's what my inmost being says. Some of you have said in so many words. My soul has been opened up, ripped open. And you took all the dentists and the doctor's surgical tools and you stuck them right in there. He didn't say it exactly like that, but that's the point. Now you let your soul say, The Lord is my portion. For all that heart ripping, the faithfulness and the mercies and the great faithfulness of our God dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Dwell on the Lord's faithfulness. Consider in the fourth place especially the death of Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verses 6 through 14. Consider especially the death of Christ. Romans 6 verse was crucified with Him. 
that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died, he's considering the cross, has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. What's the practical application? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. That is, you're not under the dominion of law and its curse and the administration that brings wrath, but you are under grace in all of its glorious administration. Consider especially the death of Christ. Now, that's why we have the Lord's Supper. What do you do with the Lord's Supper? Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Remember my death. This is my blood shed for you. Remember my death. But look at 1 Corinthians 11. I know you've heard this many times, but let's look at it in this context. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What do you do as you eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death who has come? Ah, till He comes. Remember, whoever eats this bread, 1 Corinthians 11.27, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not is unworthy, but eats or drinks in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What is it to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? Follow the text. But let a man examine himself. If you don't want to eat or drink in an unworthy manner, examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But what does that have to do with eating or drinking worthily or unworthily? Well, he who eats or drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I still don't understand and I'm afraid, for it says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. What? Is it to eat or drink in an unworthy manner, eating and drinking judgment to yourself, not discerning the Lord's body? The answer is in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You come to eat and drink of the body broken for you and the blood shed for you. And you think of all of the sins with which you come to the Lord's Supper of thought and word and deed. And that's why Jesus died. But He died. He died. He died. And it's with that recollection of your own sin and the glory of Christ that you realize that's why Jesus came. is for sinners just like you. Do you stop there? No. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. In a godly one you say, Oh Lord, my sins put you to death? My sins grieve you? I've grieved you and sinned against you? Yes. Give me grace to walk in holiness. And then you eat and drink in a worthy manner. Jesus says, yes. That's why I came. If you said at the Lord's Supper and said, well, boy, I did pretty well this week. Now I can eat and drink of the Lord's Supper. Jesus would say, that's blasphemy. I didn't die for the righteous, but for sinners. But now confronted with the horrible ugliness, the emblems of the horrible ugliness of how serious sin is. Even the Son of God had to die for it. You say, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Jesus says, not only do I promise you I'll do it, but here, here's some food and drink to strengthen you in the way. Consider especially the death of Christ. And then finally, number five, consider your life in Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, to God, the judge of all the earth, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood speaks present tense better things than the blood of Abel. In the Spirit, I know something of what it is to fellowship with a church triumphant. And I long for it. That's my life in Christ. But yet I sin. His blood still speaks. And until there's no more need for the blood to speak to cleanse you of your sin, it will keep speaking from heaven. Mercy, 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 mercy. You remember your life in Christ, but remember the mercy of God in Him. And that's how the Spirit enables you to mortify sin. 2 Corinthians 3.17 We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from the glory of grace now to the glory of glory to come, just as by the Lord the Spirit. And that brings us back to Romans 8.13 If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Let me read you one other little quotation from Pilgrim's Progress. And parents, whether you read it in a modern English version, which probably be better, or if you want to really try the old English and struggle through it, I hope that you've had your appetite whetted regarding Pilgrim's Progress. But notice the way this is described as Christian speaks with prudence. Prudence says to Christian and Palace Beautiful, Do you find sometimes as if those sins were vanquished, which at other times were your perplexity? Now what she says is, in your Christian life, you ever all of a sudden have sins come up that you thought were victorious or that you thought you'd had victory over and then they're alive? And Christian says, oh yes, but that's seldom. Uh, but there are to me uh, those golden hours in which such things happen to me. In other words, when I sense now that those sins are vanquished. And Prudence says, can you remember by what means you find your annoyances at time to be vanquished? In other words, your battle with sin to be something in which you are victorious. And Christian says, oh yes. When I think of what I saw at the cross, that will do it. And when I look upon my embroidered coat, His righteousness, that will do it. And also when I look into the roll that I carry in my bosom, the promises of God, that will do it. And when my thoughts wax warm about where I'm going, that will do it. Prudence said, and what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Christian says, well, there I hope to see Christ alive who did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. There they say there is no death, and there I will dwell with such company as I like the best. For to tell you the truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden, and I am weary of my inward sickness. I would fain be where I would die no more, and with a company that will continually cry, Holy, holy, holy. And my friend, if that's your longing, one day you'll join them in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. Faith is the means by which the infirmity that you have lays hold of the infinity of God. 
And then finally, take Christ with you in battle. That's all glorious and good. It's wonderful. But take Him with you in battle. Put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Shoes of the gospel. Helmet of salvation. Shield of faith. Sword of the Spirit. And all prayer. My friends, let me ask you. Are you doing these things so you win the battle? All of them. Especially the last. You've got to. Or you're going to lose. You can't win otherwise. But you obey these directives, and particularly this one. And by Christ, I promise you will ride in the high places of all sin to victory, even to this point, should Jesus tarry. You come to your own deathbed, and that is a battle with sin. The devil on the deathbed of the most precious saints will hurl all kinds of accusations and doubts and fears and slanders. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, O devil, Jesus has said, Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I put on Christ. And, O devil, here's the sword I'm going to stick in your belly. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin. And the sting of death is the law. But I thank God. Look at the text in 1 Corinthians 15 to see the text that the Apostle Paul would use to stick into the hide of the evil one by the sword of the Spirit. Now he does not say, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord without meat on the bones. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, But thanks be to God, look, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, devil, I will stand fast. I give you the bayonet. And in Christ, I will have the victory. And then, my dear friends, when that glorious moment comes and the battle stops and that soul that struggled with sin is separated from the body and the body ceases to move, I assure you, you will have the promise as you come into the presence of Jesus, the great warrior. He'll look at you as one of His troops and two things will happen. One, He'll say, Thank God. I've seen the travail of my soul and it's been satisfied in that one of the elect of God. And then in the glorious reward of grace, He'll look at you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, but the world, even beautiful California, can offer me a thing that I want to hear and see more than that. Notice the text. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand, and I would like to close this section with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Great devotional book. This is the Valley of Vision, Yet I Sin, our closing prayer. 
Eternal Father, You are good beyond all thought, but we are vile and wretched and miserable and blind. Our lips are ready to confess, but our hearts are slow to feel and our ways are reluctant to amend. But, O Lord, we bring our souls to You. Break them, wound them, bend them, mold them. Unmask to us sin's deformity that we may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. Our faculties have been a weapon of revolt against You. As rebels, we've misused our strength and served the foul adversary of Your kingdom. But give us grace to bewail our insensate folly. Grant us to know that the way of the transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from You is to lose all good. We have seen the beauty and the purity of Your perfect law. We've seen the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns. We've seen the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls us. And yet we still daily violate and condemn its precepts. But, O Lord, Your loving Spirit strives within us. It brings us Scripture warnings. It speaks to us in startling providences. You allure us by secret whispers, and yet still we choose devices and desires to our own hurt. We impiously resent and grieve and provoke You to abandon us. All these sins we mourn, we lament for them, and we cry for pardon. Do work in us more profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears and yet ever trusts and ever loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance we might see more clearly the brightness and the glories of the saving cross. And I would add to it all of the brightness and glory of everlasting life. And God's people said together, Amen. You're dismissed. Okay, man.